It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines, a panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host partner, John Riley. We welcome you to our studios in San Diego as we start another segment, Hacksaw's Headlines, on our podcast heading towards a great sports weekend. John, a phenomenal number of stories, some good, some bad, lots to talk about. But before we get started, introduce to the people with us on our live stream how they can join us for our regular Thursday podcast and how they can subscribe to get access to all the information that we post in our podcast weekly. All right, so you can get involved in the Fans Forum, and we do this on every Thursday episode. Um, so just type in your thoughts and comments. Maybe you have a question for Hacksaw. You can type them in in the live stream on either Facebook or YouTube. We'll see them up here on our screen, and then we'll get you involved. Those questions will come in the Fans Forum at the conclusion of Hacksaw's Headlines. And yeah, be sure to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Also want to remind you, please check my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. It's written every day of the week. It's updated. Guarantee you this. If you read what I write, you'll be the second smartest person in the room, aside from the guy <laughs> that wrote it on the website. It's LeeHacksawHamilton.com. John, we've gone through an emotional roller coaster in the National Football League. That should be topic one because that's all anybody is talking about. Yeah, I mean, let's let's start there with the uh, with Demar Hamlin. Uh, Let me tell you this. The NFL has a corporate philosophy, a player's philosophy, that you are one play away from the end of your NFL career. We never, ever thought we'd see that philosophy invoked in Monday Night Football, one play away from a life and death situation. What happened to Mar Hamlin is absolutely a one-time occurrence. It was a fluke. It was a real bad situation. As hard as it looked on Monday night, as bad as it was on Tuesday— Where he is at the end of this week is much better. The latest news on DeMar Hamlin on a Thursday is that he has now awoken. He was put into sedation. He has been on ventilator since he was taken to the hospital. He is making market improvement. He's a long ways away, though. He continues to be in the ICU critical care unit at the University of Cincinnati Hospital. However, If he continues to improve at the level that he's making improvements and gains now, he is going to be put into stable situation and then maybe transferred to another unit at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. What happened was was unique. It was different. It's probably a one-time accident. What happened on the field to the Bills and the Bengals was absolutely amazing. The outpouring of global response to the football player has been absolutely phenomenal. We're going to talk about each of these different layers of of this story. He is awake. Uh, He has been able to move his hands, his arms, and his feet. That was the latest medical report on Thursday afternoon. He cannot communicate yet because he's still intubated. Uh, He is still on a ventilator, although the capacity when they had to pump a lot of oxygen into him has now been reduced from 100% down to 50. There were some internal organ issues. I think there's a lung issue. However, the key word that the doctors used at the Thursday press conference in Cincinnati was that his neurological status was stable which means mental capacity. He is functioning mentally. He has 
inability to communicate only by writing, not talking right now. First thing that he came out when he wrote to the doctors, did we win? Did the Bills beat the Bengals? And the doctors responded and wrote back, you have won the game of life. How Uh, cool is that response? Yeah. So that's where we are. When it happened, uh, it was devastating to sit and see. I cannot imagine what it was like to be on the field for either one of these teams to have to deal with this. First thing, when he was down and I saw the medics run, I I just got a a different sense that there was terrible urgency for them to get on the field and try to treat him. It it kind of shook me. And as a longtime voice of the Chargers and Seahawks, I've seen really catastrophic injuries on the field. I'd never seen a response like this. And a minute into this, as all the flurry of activity was happening, I said to my wife, I think he had a heart attack or maybe he had a stroke on the field. And when they showed the replay a couple of times, it was not helmet to helmet. It was helmet to chest. Mm-hmm. And he got up and he stood there for full, th- full three seconds as if nothing had happened. And then he, then he went back. Mm-hmm. And that's when it occurred. They're trying to determine whether the blow of the helmet of the wide receiver T. Higgins hit him in an unprotected area of the chest, which then led to the irregular heartbeat, which then led to the cardiac event. Hmm. Doctors have supposed that's what triggered it. Now, the the NFL doctor who gave a press conference yesterday, Dr. Alan Sills, said that there were no pre-medical issues with Hamlin. There was, there, was, there was no sign of arrhythmia. Again, these guys threw, go through an unbelievable battery of physical exams. There were no signs. There's no history of heart problems. There's no enlarged heart issue. So they, they tend to think it was a one-time occurrence, the weird angle of the helmet hit on his chest that led to this cardiac event. I will say this, though. The National Football League has to be proud because we've now seen all the evidence of information uh, about how they pre-plan, how they have a catastrophic health plan in place before every game. And if something really bad happens on the field, head injury, broken neck, or a cardiac event, they have all the protocols in place. And the fact that the first three to five minutes of of his issue could have been catastrophic, those medics saved his life. And the fact that he went down at, at 5.55 our time and by 6.14 he was in the ambulance headed out of the stadium. It's just a phenomenal response by the EMT people. So credit has to be given to the National Football League because now this week they have unveiled, here's the background of what we do before each game. And there's 30 people that are involved. Uh, their 60-minute meeting an hour before the game in which they walk through every protocol that happens if there's a, a catastrophic event mm-hmm. and how they respond to it. It's just absolutely phenomenal. But that, that's where he is now. He's making progress. They think the next thing will be maybe they can get him into a stable condition, get him out of ICU. But I think the, the road back is going to be long, long and hard for him. Mm-hmm. But he's alive. He's alive. And I don't think... When we saw how bad it was on the field on Monday night, nine minutes into that game, I don't think any of us thought he'd still see Thursday or Friday or the next great sports weekend. Yeah, I mean, it's been a tough couple of days here. The part that I'm 
I'm not saying I'm going to say use the word enjoy, but the, it was interesting to learn more about him as an individual. Um, a, really, a man of character. You know, had done these toy drives in his hometown outside of Pittsburgh. Um, he was beloved by his teammates. He had his mom on the field that night. So, just seems like a quality young man. So, we just wish him the best. It's absolutely amazing the outpouring around the National Football League. His charity has now raised seven point four million dollars. And now we come to find out that owners like Jim Irsay, Robert Kraft, Mike Brown, players like Tom Brady, Russell Wilson, uh, retired people like Peyton Manning have networked with everybody they know, and they have poured money into his charity. It went from $250,000 when he first got hurt to $7.4 million from Monday night through Thursday evening as we do this podcast. So wow. the outpouring of response is absolutely specific, uh, spectacular. Yeah, unbelievable. Okay, so moving on down the list here. So what what we, we learned a little bit about the Bills, the Bengals. During the game, they were trying to figure out if they were going to continue playing. I mean, how did that all sort out? Well, I think the first thing that stunned me is when all the Buffalo players came on the field – and they did a wall of players around him. And then when you saw players turn and head to the sidelines and you saw the outpouring of emotion from the Buffalo players, we're talking about these big, tough, great athletes weeping and praying and holding hands and sitting on the bench, crestfallen. When they did a close-up shot of Sean McDermott kneeling on the field and his face was ashen. We know how devastating the injury was. And then we saw the reaction. Um, at that point in time, they continued to work on him for that very critical nine-minute window from 5.55 to 6.15, our time. And then we saw the players congregate on the field. And Joe Burrow was the first one, the Bengal quarterback, walked across the field and embraced Josh Allen. And they talked. And then you saw other players. <clears throat> and then as we got to 614, when they put him in the ambulance to take him out to the hospital, we saw all the players from both teams kneel in a prayer group. It was absolutely stunning. And then we saw the two coaches, Zach Taylor, Sean McDermott, meet at midfield with the referee, Sean Smith. And I assume they're talking about the condition of the player. And then I think I was told that... They both went to the referee, Sean Smith, and said, what should we do? Well, Sean Smith was in contact via cell phone to the league office. So that's when the referee kind of took control of this thing. And I give a lot of credit to the referee because there's no playbook for this. This is the first time this has yeah. ever, ever happened. Right. Uh, that referee told both coaches, I need you to have your space. I need you to take your players to your respective locker rooms while the league is then doing its conference calls mm -hmm. as to how to handle this. So they went to their rooms. Uh, then, then, from what I was told, Sean McDermott and Josh Allen talked to the Buffalo players. Zach Taylor, Joe Burrow talked to the Cincinnati players. And I'm led to believe that players from both sides indicated we don't think we can go back on the field and play. And they, then they went, to the, they went to the referee. Sean Smith was in contact with the league office by that point in time. He relayed the information to the league office that these players 
are not in the mental state that they want to go back on the field. And then the decision was made to suspend the game, postpone the game, cancel the game, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I was told that the league allowed the players to make the decision. And that that's the way this whole thing evolved. Um, it, I mean, it was a phenomenal display of leadership. And I, I think that's the thing that impressed me the most, that head coaches are all about X's and O's. And head coaches, John, are about sales pitches. How we're going to do this, how do you respond to this adversity? These head coaches took a leadership role. And then yesterday, Zach Taylor, the Cincinnati coach, in his first press conference, because the league shut down all the press conferences around the NFL. Nobody held press conferences. Yesterday was the first time anybody was allowed to talk. And Zach Taylor stood up in his press conference, and he indicated, and he credited Sean McDermott for taking the role in what has to be a catastrophic environment with his Buffalo Bills players with the near-death experience of, of that player. And he said Sean McDermott told him, Zach Taylor, I should be at the hospital with my player. I should not be coaching this team right now. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how they decided to get to that finish line where the game will not go on. And then it's been followed by you know press conferences from there on and the NFL revealing. And the NFL never opens up about how it does its business to be in the NFL revealing about the 60-minute meetings before every game, whether it's a preseason game or it's a regular season game or it's a playoff game. The medical package that's put together in the emergency action plan, I think is what they call it, is phenomenal. And then when you hear players like Deion Dawkins, a star tackle of the Bills, talk about his whole mindset of being an NFL player changed by virtue of the near-death experience of a teammate, but also his mindset about what these owners and that Park Avenue leadership is all about, and it's taking care of the players. Because usually, historically, in the middle of contract disputes and everything, John, it's us against them. Mm-hmm. It's the players and the union against the owners making all this money and Roger Goodell and all these decisions. But I think a lot of eyes were open. Deion Dawkins at the tackle enunciated it specifically. We know they care for us because look at what they just did in the darkest moment of being an NFL player. So that's how they got to this point in time. Your reaction to what you saw? I mean, it's it's great to hear that the NFL has you know, all these things that are happening behind the curtain in terms of prepping for these kinds of emergencies. That's great to hear. I mean, it's just such an emotional situation. Uh, But it is, you you figure it's got to be a lot of pressure on the league, on, you know, the TV, you know, the media, all the money that's involved to keep the game going. But they did the right thing and and did the best thing for the players. Exactly. Uh, We'll take another step forward. I want to talk about the Charger coach, Brandon Staley. You know, we we talk about the team. We talk about wins, losses, injuries, free agency, fourth down calls, all the things that become part of being a head coach. Brandon Staley did not speak to the media until Wednesday. And his press conference was normally about games, how you won, how you lost, what you're going to do next, who's healthy, who's not. He set all that aside. 85% of his questions were about what happened in the Buffalo-Cincinnati game. Wow. And here's a man who is a bright light. I learned so much philosophical football from being on his Zoom calls and having access to the information. 
these are the things that Brandon Staley indicated. Uh, I'll just read the notes that I made. Brandon Staley talked about the league. The protocols have allowed this guy a chance to live. We saw the NFL fraternity at its strongest. How rare an incident this was for him to get hurt that way. The NFL is responsible and incredible for what they have done on his behalf. Power of prayer, it's been shown to us globally. And based on the NFL, they've saved this young man's life. This, that was a, the bulk of the unique comments from the Chargers coach. Not about Justin Herbert, not about activating my left tackle, not about wins, losses, my lousy run defense and all that. <laughs> mm-hmm. He spent 85% of his time talking about what he viewed and what he's own experienced uh, through his coach coaching career. I, I thought it was just a phenomenal press conference. I mean, I got choked up. And I'll, I'll tell you, it, it proves the intelligence of Brandon Staley. And I think it proves the value of the man that is Brandon Staley. I was I was awed at what I heard and obviously what I've seen around the NFL. Your response? I mean, it's good to see that all around the league, people are stepping up and showing character, doing the right thing, saying the right things. It just kind of makes you feel good as a fan of the sport. Exactly. Now we on, on we go to leadership here because there's stuff on the field that still has to be evaluated. And and Roger Goodell uh, is, has taken the the temperature of the room of all the other owners, of all the influential people on all these other different teams. And what do they do? There's there's really no window to make up the game. So they are not going to reschedule the Bengal Buffalo game. Uh, they are talking about changing the methodology of determining the order in the playoffs. Usually it's win-loss records and then tiebreakers. Mm-hmm. What they're going to do, because you'd have two teams that would have played 16 games, the bulk of everybody else have played 17, what they're going to do is they're going to do it by percentage points. Whatever your winning percentage was is where you're slotted for postseason play. It just won't be on a one-loss record. And that has all types of impact implications. It obviously impacts Buffalo for home field advantage. It impacts Kansas City. It impacts Cincinnati. Do they win the division, the North Division? You know, does it impact somebody fighting for a playoff spot like the New England Patriots? So that's where they are now. In the history of the NFL, John, uh, they have changed the playoff format three times. Uh, 1982 because of the player strike. Uh, after 9-11 and 2001, and then the COVID year, they could change the end of the season format and move everything back one full week to make up that extra game that Buffalo and Cincinnati would have to play. It would mean eradicating the bye week leading into the Super Bowl, but they've decided not to do that. Uh, They're they're just going to call what happened Monday a no-contest game. They'll determine everything by percentage points, I believe. They've not made this official. And the playoffs will begin on time with the wild card weekend, even though some of the people might have been shortchanged along the way. So that's that's how they come out of it. You know, the league thinks all these things through, but because they do have a little bit of experience in dealing with, quote, having to change things. Uh, but this only affects two teams. It does not affect everybody in postseason play. There was dialogue Maybe we go to an eighth team in each conference that gets a wild card spot. So we'd have four division winners and four wild cards. 
But that's kind of radical, and I don't think the league would do it on a one-time thing. So that's where we are. I do believe percentage points will determine. But think of the NFL. You know, historically, they do business in a structure, and this is the way it's been, and this is what we're going to do. They've had to think outside the box now because of this catastrophic event. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there is no solution here that would satisfy all parties. And even if you called it a tie, then that kind of negatively impacts both the Bengals and the Bills. So I kind of like the idea of just calling it a no contest and they're going to have one less game. And there's no need to postpone the whole you know package a full week to accommodate one game. So I think they're making the best out of the situation. Yep. On we go now, going towards this weekend. It is the final weekend of the schedule. Holy cow, have we got a traffic jam. Do you have any of those orange vests, you know, that the, the guys out in the intersections use <laughs> to direct traffic? Yeah. That's what we need. Uh, we have right now in the AFC and the NFC, three teams in each conference with eight and eight records going to the final week. I mean, somebody's going to get left out. Somebody's mm-hmm. going to really be upset by Sunday night. But this is where we are right now in the AFC. Uh, you got Miami, New England, and Pittsburgh are all 8-8 eight and eight going to the final weekend of the season, fighting three teams, one spot. Miami's in a world of trouble. Defense has collapsed. There is no Tua Tagovailoa at quarterback. New England, Jekyll Hyde. You never know what you're going to get from quarterback Mac Jones uh, Sunday to Sunday. Pittsburgh which was on the floor, face down, passed out, battered at the start of the season. Mike Tomlin has dragged that team with its rookie quarterback, Kelly Pickett, into an 8-8 eight eight record and a fight to be in the playoffs. That's amazing. So we got three in the AFC fighting for one spot. In the NFC, we got three fighting for one spot. Detroit, amazing growth under Dan Campbell. Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers just refusing to let a beat-up young Packers team lose. And then you got Seattle, which has been up and down, and I'm not sure which way the arrow is pointing out to Pete Carroll. Those guys are all 8-8, eight and eight, and they're fighting for one spot. Oddly enough, final game of the season, Detroit-Green Bay. How about right. that? There you go. So that that that's where we are in terms of the playoffs. Uh, and by the way, there's another sidebar story here we haven't talked about, aside from the playoff teams. Jacksonville plays Tennessee for first place in the AFC South. And Jacksonville has gotten up off the floor with the young quarterback Trevor Lawrence. has been absolutely in, so impressive to see how the Jaguars have become a very tough team to play. And that kid quarterback under the coach Doug Peterson has just grown. And suddenly Jacksonville believes that at 8-8 eight and eight, that they belong in the playoffs. And nobody could have forecast this early in the season. So that's where we are on the schedule. Uh, I think you'll be watching some games Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that Detroit-Green Bay game sounds great. But isn't this a little bit like our conversation about the bowl games, where we're looking for a team that's 7-6 and six to fit into a bowl game? Here we got 8-8 eight and eight teams. And there's still a chance, really, that the Buccaneers could get in with an under 500 record, right? That could happen. Could happen, but you never know. You never know. But I love this last part of the year because it's if this, then that. If this team wins and then that team loses, then all these different combinations. It drives my wife bananas. But I just love this uh, this time of the year when you have all these different possibilities. One other thing in the aftermath of what happened on Monday night, let's let's talk about a little bit of NFL history. This is such a big, fast, physical game, but this game has had tragedies in it. And we'll just talk about the names that are on this board. Obviously, we talk about Hamlin and the cardiac event. 
Corey Stringer was a star young tackle of the Minnesota Vikings who died of heat stroke on the practice field. He had had heat problems in Minnesota in July and August is just brutal in terms of heat, heat humidity and heat index. Uh, He had gone down the prior two days and Corey Stringer was showing signs of heat problems the third day in practice in in 2001. They took him to an air conditioned trailer, which is normally how they treated players back then. He died. That was a horrific, horrific loss, and he was a great, great young player. Uh, Chuck Hughes is the only player to actually die on the field. 1971 Detroit Lions wide receiver had a heart attack on the field and died. They could not save him. He had a blood clot near his heart. We saw the injuries with broken necks, spinal damage. Ryan Shazier's life was saved on the field with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, he was paralyzed. He is now walking. It's an absolutely amazing story, as witnessed by when he walked to the podium at the NFL draft two years ago and actually made the selection for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Nice. And this was a guy who was in a wheelchair. Mike Outley was a kid from Washington State, offensive tackle, Detroit Lions. He fell over a player blocking, went head first into the turf. He broke his neck. He is totally paralyzed, but he's functioning. And, of course, Daryl Stingley, a great New England Patriot receiver, took a vicious hit from Jack Tatum back in the day, quadriplegic, lived a life till he passed away in the early 2000s. As big and as violent and as physical and as exciting as the game is, there's a, there's a tragic side to the game. But like everything else in the NFL, John, the league has progressed in medical care, whether it's it's the Corey Stringer heat stroke crisis, whether it's the violence on the field that now the rules are taking control of, whether it's a changing of equipment, the actual changing of the rules about what you can and can't do on the field. And the league obviously will now go through a methodology of determining players' heart issues, etc., I'd like to see further change of equipment. I'd like to see helmets with more protection. I would like to see all players required to wear what I would say would be heavy flak jackets. Everybody, not just quarterbacks, but everybody, which then lessens the impact of a player that could cause structural damage to the body. You know, the player's response is, well, I look weird in that helmet. It doesn't matter because all 22 guys at the line of scrimmage would look weird in their protective helmets. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the players. I don't want to wear a big flak jacket, so I don't feel comfortable. You feel comfortable if you don't suffer a catastrophic injury because you're wearing a flak jacket. I think that's the next thing that's going to happen in the National Football League. Your response? Well, I mean, it's... uh it's remarkable there hasn't been more of these cases, of these catastrophic cases. I remember um, the Utley situation. I mean, that was tragic. And I and I just started following football with, with the – it was, was Daryl Stingley, that, yes. that case, in the early 70s. Um, but I think the NFL has to set an example on safety for all the youth football players, you know, so because we're seeing a lot more injuries at that level because those kids are not as athletic and don't know how to take a hit. And so the NFL has to be the standard bearer here. And I think simultaneously coaching has to get better. And I don't care whether that's an NFL coach or that's a coach at Dartmouth University or a coach working in the, the Poway leagues. Mm-hmm. Coaching has to teach the players how to make contact, how to hit, etc. Uh, like everything else that the NFL has gone through from this concussion crisis to obviously this situation, uh, I'm glad this did not end up in a tragedy. It could have. Maybe it, maybe it still will because he's not out of the woods yet. But the NFL has learned through all this adversity what they have to do. 
And like Dion Dawkins said, they learn so much about the infrastructure, how the NFL cares about its players. And this is coming from somebody who was a voice of an NFL team who was aghast at, at the concussions, the settlement, how it happened, what was not done years prior. I was so turned off when I saw the movie Concussion and when I read the book written by the ESPN investigative reporters. But the league has taken the strides they have to to fix this thing. Okay, we get to halftime. We're going to talk more about football in just a minute. For all the people that are watching us on live stream, John, how can they join us in Fans Forum at the end of the show? And... How do they subscribe so they will get the alerts to all the special things we do on our weekly Hacksaw Headlines podcast? All right, so you can still get involved in the fans' forum. Just type in your questions or comments on the live stream on either Facebook or YouTube. We'll see them here on our screen. We'll get you involved in the fans' forum at the conclusion of Hacksaw's Headlines. And be sure to subscribe. You know, Go to Lee Hacksaw Hamilton uh, YouTube channel. You can subscribe there. Click on the, the bell to get the alerts when we have new episodes because we're releasing you know little clips of a lot of these videos all throughout the week. Uh, so subscribe on YouTube and then be sure to subscribe You know wherever you get your podcasts for Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all the audio-only platforms. You can catch Lee Hacksaw Hamilton there as well. And check my website every day because it is written. You won't get this information anywhere else. Agree or disagree, I don't care as long as you read the website, <laughs> LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Second half, on we go. There is Monday Night Football this Monday night. It's different, though. It's going to be good. I mean, it's, we're talking about the Natty here, the national championship. This is going to be good. I'm wearing purple on Monday, so let, let's break it down. You got Georgia. You got TCU. You got Georgia Bulldogs and their history of great offense and defense. You got Texas Christian, the upstart from outside the circle, coming from the party, and they're going to play. What a great matchup. This is going to be a street fight. Georgia's defense is legendary. They had seven guys drafted last year off that Georgia Bulldog defense. TCU has come out of nowhere. We saw what Texas Christian did in their playoff game against Michigan. Now the burning question, you got two really different quarterbacks. There's no doubt that Stetson Bennett is a winner. This kid has driven Georgia to the national championship game two years in a row. There's no doubt that TCU's quarterback, Max Duggan, is a playmaker. He's surrounded by running backs and big wide receivers. So the burning question is, which defense imposes its will on the opposing quarterback? Can Texas Christian, which had two goal line stands, two pick sixes, and held Michigan to three of 13 on third downs, can TCU ratchet it up and do the same thing again? And the, the flip side for Georgia, they didn't run the ball real well, but they threw the ball deep when they had to. Can Georgia's offense hold up against a stonewall TCU defensive front? And then defensively, can Georgia defend the whole spread package that TCU has? But historically, you look at the list of games and results this year, Georgia's beaten five big boys this season. Mm -hmm. A little bit with their quarterback, a lot of it with his defense. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, I'm going to wear purple this Monday night. Uh, I just I like what TCU has become in, in the absolute first year under Sonny Dykes. I think it's going to be a fun game. So what do you think is more important, the guy punching in the mouth on defense or the quarterbacks making plays down the field? I, I think the quarterbacks are where all the focus is going to be. And Max Duggan just did such a great job for TCU. Um, you know, you, you had him number four on your Heisman ballot. Do you want to make an adjustment to that ballot yet? He's a winner. Yeah, he is a but winner. But so is Stetson Bennett. Yeah. So I, 
I just think it's going to be a fun game. Enjoy Monday Night Football, the college version, because I think it will be good. Let's go from football. we got baseball to talk about. Oh, my gosh. This is the, the Trevor Bauer story. We're, we're coming up to the deadline where the Dodgers got to make a decision. Well, there's all kinds of burning rumors and innuendo that the Dodgers may have a sidebar deal in place, that they're not ready to make the determination, and they may... They may ask the arbitrator or they may ask Trevor Bauer's lawyers to just to agree to an extension a little bit farther. Uh, it is interesting, though, because there are inside reports that Dodger players want Trevor Bauer back. They're allowed, they're, they, it would allow the Dodgers to bring him back. Maybe it's under certain conditions. Uh, during the course of this suspension, while he was under investigation, there was a sentiment. I am led this believe the sentiment was led by Justin Turner, the departed third baseman who's gone to the Red Sox, not to bring this guy back in this clubhouse. I think that may have changed a little bit because he paid such a fierce price with the suspension, the loss of his credibility, uh, the enormous amount of money that he lost while he was suspended under investigation. Uh, at this point, there's a reality here, too. Left hand says... Dodgers, you're going to let this guy come back? You're the same Dodger ownership that pulled out of the Carlos Correa negotiations because of what he did in this hind-stealing case? So you're holding Correa to a standard of honesty, but you'd let this guy back in your clubhouse? So that's what the left hand says. The right hand side says they need pitching depth. Now, I do think if they bring him back, couple him with the ex-Met Noah Syndergaard and the five young arms they think are going to surface one or two of them out of Oklahoma City, they could have a pretty good pitching staff because I have no doubt that Syndergaard, two years removed from surgery, might be the Syndergaard we used to see with the Mets. And there's no doubt that Bauer is going to show up and he's going to pitch. Whether or not he's accepted by everybody is, is another argument. So I think there's a reality here of what can they be on the field if he rejoins them with the ex-Met free agent that they have just signed with the, the four pitchers they returned from last year and Ryan Pepio or any of the young kids from Oklahoma City. Fascinating story as to what the Dodgers should be do. And on top of that, the LA Times ran a week-long survey. 19,000 people took part in the survey. Do you want Trevor Bauer back? And it was just like the survey I ran on my mini-poll mm-hmm. on my website, leehacksawhamilton.com. Almost even, Stephen. of the L.A. Times respondents said, bring them back, retain them. Mm -hmm. 48.8% responded, release them. Kind of split right down the middle. So I'm not sure what Mark Walter, Andrew Friedman, and the other leadership of the Dodgers will do. But I've laid out the plans of what used to be the atmosphere, what the atmosphere is right now, how people are responding. And then the reality of here's your roster. What are you going to do? Go forward without him? or go forward with him and Syndergaard to be part of it. So you're a big-time baseball fan. Take your giant jersey off. (laughs) Just tell me what you think they should do. Well, I mean, if I'm the owner of the team, I cut them loose. Because, you know, we have to separate the legality versus... Um, the business part of this, because the, and, and there's the, the athletic sports angle to it as well. Legally, apparently he's he's innocent. Right. That's kind of how the investigation shook out. Never got charged. Never got charged. Um, 
But from a business perspective, this guy just just brings a dust storm of controversy wherever he goes. I mean, even when the Dodgers signed him originally, the fans were kind of fired up because of all this drama that comes along with him. And it's not just this woman that was involved. There's been other women that have made accusations. Um, and he's he's just a, a divisive figure, and it's 50-50, right? So that's the definition of divisive. If I'm the Dodgers, I find a way to unload him. If they could parlay a trade so it's not just a complete salary dump, that would be the best-case solution for the Dodgers. There are a lot of fans that want to bring him back, and as a, as a pitcher, you would assume that he would be great but he has been hasn't pitched in what two years. So is he going to be the same guy? We don't know. There's a twenty two million dollar contract that would still have to be paid. I don't think anybody would trade for his toxic personality. Not to say he can't change. If I were King, if I were the Dodgers, and you were Trevor Bauer, you will apologize. You will give me back a chunk of the salary that you were paid while on administrative leave. That will go towards charity. I will pay you the final $22 million to be on my team. You will not step out of line. You will go to counseling. Those are the parameters if Trevor Bauer wants to be a Dodger. Because as I said last week, I don't think anybody's going to trade for his toxic history. Because that is stapled to his resume for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Just like the Deshaun Watson incidents in Houston are stapled to his resume for the rest of his NFL career. But if you can pitch, even if you, though you might be public enemy number one, but you give me those concessions, I'll let you back on my team. You're looking at me strange. You don't agree, but that's okay. You're entitled to your opinion, well, a, even if it's wrong. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, there's a lot of conditions to that as well. And, you know, Bauer is still going to be who he is. You know, it's going to be, he might try to be, you know, the, the calm and contained Bauer. But in a month or two, he's you're going to start seeing more of the same Stuff from loaded that guy. question. Yeah, loaded question here. Trevor Bauer outcome equal to Colin Kaepernick outcome. Are they one and the same, or is it so two radically different things? Because we know the end result with this former star quarterback of the 49ers. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Kaepernick was back blacklisted by the whole NFL. I think that's pretty clear. Wrongly. I, yeah, wrongly, of course. Absolutely wrongly. Um, but I think in the case of Bauer, if the Dodgers cut him loose, someone else will pick him up because they're going to get him at the major league minimum. You think anybody else's fans are going to like that other team taking this guy on with all the junk that's come out yeah. of his mouth and what he's put on social? Oh, network? I think so. I think I think if you look at some of those big money uh, teams on the East Coast, Philly, the Yankees, I mean, he could show up there very easily. Despite what's stapled to his resume? Yes. You're entitled to your opinion, yeah. but your opinion's probably wrong. <laughs> okay, let's talk about something kind of fun. Let's talk a little NBA basketball. Go ahead, bring this one up, and don't shoot an air ball. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, look, look at these numbers. I mean, these, these guys were piling up so many points this week. Swish. That's the only word to use as it relates to the NBA. This has been kind of fun to watch. I mean, Donovan Mitchell, 71-point outburst for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Last guy to go that high was Kobe Bryant, who had 80 in a game. And then that that was followed 
by the Dallas superstar, what Luka Doncic has did. Not only did he have 60 points, he had 23 rebounds and 10 assists in the same game. Think about that accomplishment. And then obviously Joel Embiid has become a superstar in Philadelphia. He's had a pile of 40-plus games. He's had a 50-point game and then the 59-point game. you got Devin Booker in Phoenix, although he tweaked a hamstring going off for those points. Anthony Davis, before he got hurt, had 55 for the Lakers. Giannis Antetemko uh, in Milwaukee just had 55. You talk about individual accomplishments, that's pretty impressive. Now, that being said... Is defense optional in the NBA? Is that the storyline now, John? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's like watching uh, you know one of the, the the Harlem Globetrotter games, you know, as far as no defense being played. But I just love seeing this. I mean, when you have big guys, you know, scoring a lot of points, that makes the game exciting. Um, you know, especially in the early ha- the first half of the NBA season when they need a little something to get the fans interested in. So I think this is fantastic. Yeah, Donovan Mitchell hit twenty two baskets, twenty two baskets in one game, pile of threes and a bunch of twos to get to a 71. Okay, final topic on the table. Corner, kick me this next question. Get ready for the response. Yeah, so we were talking about Berhalter and and whether the U.S. men's national team should sign him to a long-term contract, and they were dragging their feet, and maybe now we know why. Yeah, the depths of the story are really dirty. Uh, Greg Berhalter, who rebuilt Team USA World Cup soccer, got them through the uh, group play into the knockout round before they got beat, laying the groundwork for the 2026 World Cup. Had not gotten a contract extension, and now we now we know why, and it's really bad. The mother of one of his players, Gio Reyna, the young teenage star who did not play very much and was involved in controversy with Team USA because of his practice habits. The mother of Gio Reyna has gone public, leaking the information that Greg Berhalter, when he was a college star at North Carolina at age 18, dating a woman at the University of North Carolina, got involved in a domestic incident outside a bar and kicked her once on the leg. Gio Reyna's mother, who is married to the father, Claudio Reyna, who was a star for Team USA back mm-hmm. in the day. Claudio Reyna and Greg Berhalter, longtime friends. The two wives are friends. And yet, Gio Reyna's mother leaked this information and went to the U.S. Soccer Federation. And she did it after Greg Berhalter had told the kid, your play is going to be limited as a 19 or 20-year-old for a World Cup. You haven't practiced hard. You need to apologize to your teammates before I let you back on the pitch. And he did. He played some in the final couple of games, but not very much. This thing is so sleazy. This incident happened in 1991. Greg Berhalter left the soccer team that he played with Reina's father, left the soccer team under one counseling. He married that woman. The incident in 1991, he married her. He'd been married since. He's got four kids. Never had a problem since. To me, that's kind of tacky that one parent would dig this information up or know this information and now leak it. On Thursday morning, Greg Berhalter said he was devastated, said it was his wife's story to tell if she wished to talk about the domestic incident. Since 1991, she never wanted to talk about it. And yet the mother of Gio Reyna leaked this and then went to U.S. Soccer Federation. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it's, it's, it's horrible. We all make mistakes at age 18 or age 20, whatever it was. Why, after so many years, 31 years, 
would he be held accountable for something stupid he did that he apologized for, the counseling he got, and then become a legendary coach? Is it is it far-fetched to say this sure looks like it was extortion? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is sleazy. And it, the fact that, you know, uh, that uh, Bearhalter married this, this lady um, kind of ch- tells you that they, they've resolved the matter on their own privately. But the part that is, that's crazy is it's Gio Reyna's mother. And you think about youth sports and how parents can sometimes completely destroy what happens with the kids and, and what happens on the field when their kids aren't getting the playing time that they want. I mean, I know with my kids when I, they were growing up, I saw that happen all around. Um, now we see it at the probably the highest level here with the U.S. men's national team. That just feels dirty. You know, if if you're shaming a coach for something that has really been resolved uh, just because you're upset that your kid didn't get enough playing time. The parents from hell. Yeah. Whether that's the youth soccer program in Rancho Bernardo Poway. Yes. Or the U.S. World Cup team. The parents (laughs) from hell. Right. And it sure looks like this is retaliation. Oh, for sure. You had this information for 31 years and now it's important you're going to make this public because your kid got disciplined by his head coach. All coaches have to tell kids what they want to hear, what they don't want to hear, what they should do to make themselves better. And if you don't do it, this will be the outcome. This sure looks like leap in retaliation to me, and it's absurd. Well, but Gio Reyna was kind of, um, you know, being a baby, wasn't he? Was he kind of whining that he wasn't playing as much, wasn't really focused during the, the workouts? So the coach on the, what limited information I have seemed like he did the appropriate thing, you know, to, to tell him he needs to get his act together. Um, but you know, moms are always there defending their children and it's ridiculous that it gets to this level, you know, it's, it's just bananas. You know, U.S. Soccer Federation, which has had its own set of scandals in its leadership, just like everybody in FIFA has had its own set of scandals. So we're going to impose discipline on Greg Greg Berhalter for a 31-year-old incident while the leadership of soccer locally, nationally, and globally has Mm -hmm. had all these scandals with kickbacks and everything. We're going to hold Greg Berhalter to a much different set of values 31 years after the incident. So I think they're making a terrible mistake if they take this a step forward. And I don't know how the Reina family expects their young teenage son to be able to play for this guy if this guy gets the contract extension, which I tend to think he should. Would you give him the extension? And how does Reina go forward with this guy? Yeah, well, he, need, he this guy deserves the extension. I mean, he got the he got the U.S. team into the knockout rounds with an extraordinarily young roster. Um, Reina is just going to have to grow up. You know, he's just going to have to. I mean, maybe apologize to the coach for his lackadaisical kind of behavior and really focus and prove that he deserves time on the pitch. The facts on the, on the paper show that Reyna not only dogged it, that he broke curfew, that he was overweight, that he practiced poorly, all in the midst of the greatest moments of U.S. soccer coming back to be a global team. He was doing all this junk because... He didn't get the chance to play. He did apologize. He was put back on the field. The coach never mentioned his name, but it leaked out about what he did over in Qatar. Uh, so the kid shares some blame and the family. I don't, I don't know how the family expects their son to be able to play for that coach. Unless Burhalter gets a contract extension and says that is history. 
go be my next striker with Christian Pulisic and let's grow as a player, let's mm-hmm. grow as a team, let's look towards 2026. That's how I would handle it. But I'll, I'll grant you, I don't think the Burhalter reign of family friendship, which goes back to the 1990s at the University of North Carolina, where both husband and wife, husband and wife played together and were close friends for all those years. I don't know how that relationship works, but... We'll see where this goes in the coming weeks. Interesting. So many parallels to a lot of other stories because on one level, this is a young man who wherever he has been, he has been the superstar. (laughs) And now suddenly he's not. And so that was difficult for him to adapt to. On the other hand, he's a young man in the the spotlight, uh, like kind of like Fernando Tatis Jr. that hasn't fully matured as a man, um, hasn't developed the character traits necessary. And then finally, it's interesting how how you talk about double standards and the rules that are applied to different people. We see that across all of these different sports as we get outside the lines, how management and how uh, the media are treating different people for similar infractions and who gets a pass and who doesn't. It's uh, it's crazy. Yeah. We go on time for fans form a reminder. Uh, I hope you'll subscribe to get our podcast when it's released every Thursday. Hope you'll go on my website, leehacksawhamilton.com, to get written content every day of the week. Fans Forum. We've got a few people with opinions here. John, go ahead. Yeah, so we got one here from Andy P. Clubhouse cancer. Teammates don't want him. He's got to be talking about Trevor Bauer. Exactly. Uh, Tough call for the Dodgers. I do think those who were vocal in their private meetings and conversations with upper-level management might not be there anymore. I'm led to believe that Justin Turner was very strong about what Justin Turner stands for. We don't want Trevor Bauer here. But there are 10 veteran players that are now gone off that Dodger roster. So some of those other players that might have felt the same uh, maybe, maybe are gone and no longer part of the equation. Let's be honest here. Andy, uh, this will be stapled to his resume for the rest of his life. He will be public enemy number one in lots of places when he goes to pitch. But if if he makes restitution in terms of an apology, in terms of giving back the money he was given while on, quote, administrative leave, while not, not pitching, while donating that money to charity, and if he's honest, he'll have to be a different person. If he is... Then I let him pitch because he has to understand, Andy, and this is the big piece of the equation. I don't think anybody's going to touch him because everybody who would touch him would have to deal the same thing with the media and the same thing from their fans. Why are you doing this? I think there's an inside track for him to get back and pitch for his next contract and be a good citizen. Now, if he elects not to be a good citizen, they'll get rid of him and the Dodgers will have to swallow the $22 million dollars. But they have to get an apology, and I think they have to get uh, uh, him to agree to conduct his business differently to get what money is left out there. Yeah. I mean, it's – yeah, we kind of cover all the angles to this thing, but it's interesting how – this, from social media perspective, how this is such a hot topic. And you know, even in the YouTube video clips on, on the Lee Hacksaw Hamilton YouTube channel, this clip about Trevor Bauer has had way more comments than almost any of the other clips because everyone's got an opinion on this. A lot of fans that think he should be playing, a lot of fans that think he's a clubhouse cancer, and it's really it's emotional and it's 50-50. Okay. We got anybody else out there wants to ask a question on our fans forum? Well, I have a question for you, Lee. So um, talking about off the field stuff, has there been any new developments in the Matt Ariza situation? 
not at this point because the NFL player personnel window is not opened. That opens post Super Bowl. Five days after the Super Bowl, free agency happens. And then teams will sign players to future contracts. That could happen that somebody will sign him as an unrestricted free agent to bare minimum. Somebody will take him on. He's kind of got this whole thing still stapled to his resume that he made kind of a bad decision, uh, even though he was never, ever charged with anything wrongdoing. So at, at this point in time, because you can't make player acquisitions, the, he will get signed to a futures contract by somebody to come to their mini camps in the offseason post-draft in April. And then he'll try to resurrect his reputation. Uh, I think that's going to be a bit of a challenge. He'll get the chance to resurrect his career. And he's still a vibrant football player who get the chance to be on NFL roster, compete for a job, and maybe even a starting punter's job. But that's that's down road post Super Bowl. Yeah, I again I have such mixed feelings about it. On one hand, I, I want him to have another opportunity because he's a you know, local kid and he did so well on the field. But it's still it's still cloudy. You know, the whole story, there's still a civil trial coming, right? We think. We think. Um and and then you know, it's just a tricky spot, man. I just don't know what to think about all of this. But, boy, I saw him in the preseason games for the Bills, and, boy, he was kicking the heck out of the ball. I mean, just like he did for the Aztecs. He was what he was as a player, as a person. He's not what we thought he could be. Not to say he can't resuscitate his life now that he's had this probably will be the second chance. Yeah. Hey, just uh, one other comment. Just uh, what's what's your take on Aztecs basketball right now? 30-win team. You know, they they have to win road games in the Mountain West Conference, which is really tough. Uh, The next stop on the horizon, uh, Wyoming, which is in a bit of a downswing because of injuries to their roster. Then they go to Albuquerque. Albuquerque, New Mexico Lobos were 14-0. They just got punched in the mouth at Fresno State. Uh, it's it's interesting. The Mountain West is hard, but they've already got the Vegas victory in their pocket. Winning at the pit in Albuquerque would be the next accomplishment. I still think they're a 30-win team. I still think potentially they could run the table and be unbeaten in the Mountain West Conference. And I still think, barring any significant injuries or illness, and that includes Nathan Mensa, who had the history of the blood clot problem, uh, barring injuries, I think this is an unbeaten team in the Mountain West. And you and I in the spring will be talking March Madness, Sweet 16, mm-hmm. maybe Elite 8. But there's a lot of three-point shots have to be hit between now and then to get to that conversation. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, we thank you for joining us on our regular Thursday podcast. Please subscribe so you'll get the alerts from all the things that we do on our podcast Thursday. And then what we add Monday through Friday weekday. On behalf of John Riley, this is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Have yourself a great sports weekend. Thanks for being with us on Hacksaw's Headlines and our podcast. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.